Okay, that said, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 4. Judges 4 and 5 we're going to look at, and we're not going to go through every single thing. It's too big of a chunk. Um, we're going to, next two, in two weeks when we go with the story of Gideon, same, same type of thing. It would be beneficial for you to read ahead so you kind of know um, what, what's going on as far as just a, at least a, who the players are, who, who the people that are involved. And hopefully this week that was something you were able to do as well. Um, Judges chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to read the entire thing. We already read chapter 5 there. I'll I'll read chapter 4. Let's pick it up there in verse 1. These are the words of God. Judges 4 verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did again what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Now Ehud had died, and Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Hagoyim is the word for uh, Gentiles. Verse 3, Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, for he had 900 chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun? And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Then Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. Then they, sold, then they told Sisera... Uh, then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Has not Yahweh gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Yahweh threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his camp into confusion with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera came down from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and all those in the camp as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the camp of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one remained. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside uh, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be, if anyone comes and asks of you and says, Is there a man here? That you shall say no. Then Jael, Haber's wife, took a tent peg and placed a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Now behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hand 
of the sons of Israel went forth heavier and heavier against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had cut off Jabin, the king of Canaan. Let's pray. Our Father in God, you are the God of grace and mercy, the God of light, the God of peace. We come to you this, uh, this evening asking and praying that you would be with us as we look to your word. We pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in both Russia and Ukraine, and we ask that you would strengthen your worldwide church for the sake of your kingdom. Give us ears tonight that we may hear from your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I do want to begin tonight, this evening, speaking very briefly of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and I'm not going to get too far into that. You can wait till the radio podcast comes out. Um, I do want to say a couple of things. First, uh, this doesn't mean that the end of the world is at hand. <laughs> so already the rapture index is through the roof. Um, this idea that Russia is Gog and Magog and this nonsense, uh, it's just poor theology. It's, it's, not, it's not the end of days, so just FYI. Bad eschatology leads to bad thinking and contemporary is issues. Now, second, what it does mean is that there is much more work to be done in the world as the Prince of Peace subdues his enemies. That, that much is obvious. And it also means that you and I cannot lose sight of what it is Christ has called us to do. So events like this happen, and the world watches and sorts through the propaganda coming out every which way, and we try to get to the truth, we try to discern what it is, and then we also remember, though, that Christ has given us a task. So these things shouldn't leave us, uh, you know, in neutral, so to speak. So when we consider, for example, the great task of the Great Commission, there's always a temptation to think that it is far too difficult a thing. We can't fathom discipling the nations. And yet, we have millions of Christians all over the world who are called to this task. And Jesus gave that task to 11 people. You think you're overwhelmed at the prospect of discipling the world? Now, I get it. I had it out with the Lord this week. <laughs> Just feelings of frustration. The weight of frustration is wicked and evil men do wicked and evil things to hurt and oppress people. But too many Christians see something like this and what might happen with China and Taiwan now, we're waiting, and people think, ah, hurry up, Jesus, just hurry up and come back because I don't want to be here anymore. And this is called having an escapist theology, an escapist worldview. Instead of escape, it's actually an opportunity for serious prayer and godly activity. And what we should not want is to escape. In fact, Jesus told us the exact opposite in Luke 19, 13, when in a parable, the nobleman told his 10 slaves, he told the, the this being Jesus, of course, but the nobleman told the 10 slaves to engage in business until I come. It's a parable, but he says engage in business. That is occupy the land, as the King James Version puts it. So Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 46, a principle that was pertinent to the first century church during the tribulation of AD 70, he said, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So Jesus ought to find us busy with this kingdom. It amazes me that people who do pontificate on this stuff and think that the end of the, end of the times is here, it's all over, we're done, and they don't get busy like the, Jesus said. Even if you take those parables to be the end of the world, yeah, they're just sitting at home watching Fox News. If you really believe it's the end, your own scriptures that you say you believe says you need to get busy, not put your feet up. Different sermon, different night. Which is all to say, I should, to kind of bring it all together, that the Christian program is not dictated by the news headlines. The Christian program is not dictated by news headlines. So onward, Christ our Lord says. But this also begs a larger question, one which does have everything to do with the passage before us this evening. What exactly is history? What is history? And what does God plan to do with it? Is it karma? Is it cyclical? Is it, some of us are going to be reincarnated, and unfortunately, if you did bad things, you get to be a toilet when you come back. You know? um, is that, do we, you know, what is history? What does God plan to do with it? Now, we saw last week 
the grotesque nature of King Eglon's death at the hands of the, in the sword of Ehud, the left-hander. Um, that was a fun text. And we're going to continue to see Israel struggle through history as God guides them and judges them and rescues them. But what is history? Think about it. What, what is history? The stuff that we see going on in the world, have you stopped to think, what is it? What is history? Well, I'm going to tell you what it is. History is the formative power of the omnipotent God as he rescues and redeems his people for his glory. What is history? It's the formative power, the shaping power of the omnipotent, all-powerful God as he rescues and redeems his people for his glory. So, which is all to say our conviction is that God achieves kingdom progress and no enemy can stop him. God achieves kingdom progress in history. No enemy can stop him. He controls all situations, all people, all events, right? Proverbs says the lot's cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everything, everything, every leaf that falls off a tree does so because the Lord does so. That's what we're talking about. And, and he does that, by the way, he orchestrates all of those things for his own redemptive purposes. And because he is all-powerful, there is no one who can stay his hand. No one can stay his hand. Which means, dear church, that you can find comfort, you can find solace in trusting him. And what we are seeing today is similar to what we're looking at in Judges, meaning this, war on earth, war on earth is a reflection of war in the heavens. War on earth is a reflection of war in the heavens. Don't forget Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Christ our King, this is Revelation 19, Christ our King rides on his horse through history with the sword of his word coming out of his mouth, carrying forth his sanctions while he's amassing an army known as his elect. That is what is happening here. And that said, our passage tonight is one example that demonstrates the principle that what takes place on earth is a reflection of what God is doing in the heavens. And you can think of it this way. Chapter 4 gives us a basic narrative of events as Israel battles Jabin, the king of, of the Canaanites. All of, the, all of it, what I just read in chapter 4, all of it is an emphasis on human agency and it, that's involved here. So this person went to war with this person, and this is what took place. And we're not told a whole lot about it. We're not told everything that took place. We're just told, you can look in your bulletin, by the way, and uh, I put the map there so you could kind of follow along. The map of this battle, where, where it's located. You have the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea there, but you can, you can see that this is a battle that took place in history. Um, we have plenty of archaeological uh, information and, and findings that verify all of this stuff, but this war that took place, you can see where kind of where the arrows are, are pointing. Um, what's amazing is we're not told everything, but then you get to chapter 5, which Emberly read, and chapter 5 is actually Hebrew poetry. It's the Song of Deborah. And Deborah allows us to peer behind the curtain, as it were, and we get to see into the spiritual world or the unseen world. So I've seen movies like that, sort of, where you, you, you think you know what's going on, and then I think the sixth sense is kind of like that. You're, you're in this paradigm, and then at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, wait, actually, this is what was going on. So chapter 4 tells us the battle, but chapter 5 tells us what is actually going on underneath all of it. That's, chapter 4 is the battle on earth against flesh and blood, but chapter 5 says, well, actually, there's other things going on in the heavenlies and this unseen world. And, and chapter 5 focuses on God. What is God up to? You know, I wanted to stick with the theme of judges, and I almost called this sermon the Battle of the Brides, which is a funny title, but as we'll see, this whole story, chapter 4 and 5, is about uh, the bride of Yahweh finds herself fighting against the bride of Baal. And it's a war of the brides, so to speak. So let's look at our text and 
go from there. Again, it's a large section. I'm going to kind of summarize and highlight as we go, and you can follow along. I want to make sure we have plenty of time to do justice to it. So chapter 4, again, we start out in verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And we also know that Ehud had died. So same issue. Othniel dies. Stuff goes crazy. Ehud comes to, this, to, this, to the scene. Now we have Ehud dies. Everybody, everybody's back at it. The judges die. Lawlessness begins. Um, Ehud is gone. Everyone's back at the sin thing again. It's the same cycle over and over again. And in verse 2, Yahweh sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And so we have Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and we have the commander of his army. His name is Sisera. So just so you know who's at play here. So the scene is set. Yahweh sold his purchased people back into slavery for their sins. Note that language there. Yahweh sells his people back into slavery. It's a reversal of Egypt. So we've dealt with the Babylonians, we've dealt with the Amalekites, we've dealt with Sodom, and now the Canaanites are here. So all the foes of Israel keep showing up in the story. And Israel was told to rid the land of the Canaanites, and now it kind of comes back to bite them. They didn't do their job, so what happens? The Canaanites become powerful, and they become servants of them. They're slaves of the very people that they were told to make sure got uh, out of the land which is all to say that present-day decisions have massive consequences in the future. What you decide to do today has massive consequences for the future. Now, remember this. Back in Joshua 11, we already had another Jabin. Jabin is a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. So we've already had another Jabin. And Joshua, they had already won a battle against Jabin of Hazor, and he had been defeated, but... Here we're told they're back. They came, they built, they built back better, apparently. And they rebuilt their city and they came back with a vengeance. <laughs> Not in my notes. Um, they come back with a vengeance. And Canaan, we know in Scripture, Canaan is actually a type of the world. When you see Canaan, the land of Canaan, it's sort of a microcosm of the larger world. So Canaan is, is, is the world. And Israel was supposed to be a new and better Adam after Adam had sinned in the garden. And now we have a problem, though. Adam is now, Israel is now a servant or a slave of Jabin. And Jabin, by the way, at this point, would have been king of the world. They were probably the most influential people at that time. They, back then, until Babylon and Assyria came on the scene and Egypt before them, you, know, you didn't have massive superpowers um, outside of them. So... He was probably king of the world, and Adam was supposed to work and keep the garden, but now he's become a slave of another king who's taken over the garden, and we have an an issue here. So after 20 years of suffering, think of this, 20 years of suffering, Israel finally cries out. They cried out to God. Jabin had 900 chariots, by the way, 900 iron chariots, the best of the best, okay, the best you could buy from whoever makes iron chariots back then, the military-industrial complex at the time. And this, these iron chariots were a problem for Israel. But as we'll see, the real issue wasn't the fact that they had these crazy technology. The real issue was they actually lacked faith. And that's in verse 3. So next we meet Deborah. So we have Jabin, the king of Canaan, Sisera, his right-hand man. Now we meet Deborah. Deborah, she was judging Israel. And she was probably judging Israel at the same time as Shamgar. Shamgar was in the southern region, and today's Gaza Strip, Gaza. That's where the Philistines were located. And Deborah, in verse 4, is a prophetess. We don't meet a lot of them, but she's a prophetess. She's from the southern part of Israel in the hill country of Ephraim. So if you look on it, I don't know if it's on your map. I think it's further down. It's not on that one. And Israel came to her, in verse 5, for judgment, or in Hebrew, literally, the judgment. Meaning, they knew this was a problem. They came to her, what do we do about it? So they're trying to inquire with her. Now, Deborah summons Barak. That is how you say it in the Hebrew, Barak, Barak, um, not Barak, but Barak. He is a Levitical priest, and the Levites were supposed to be representatives of Yahweh to the people. That was their job. And Deborah says to Barak in verse 6, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun, 
and you can see where Nephtali and Zebulun are on the map. 10,000 men from them. And Deborah's confident, and she's confident because the victory is theirs. She knows the Lord has given her that word. And she's going to draw out Sisera, Jabin's commander, with all the chariots, all the troops. They're going to come out to the river of, of Kishon. Can you guys see it on the map, the Kishon River, where it comes in from the Mediterranean Sea, where that peninsula kind of kicks out there in, in the land of Asher. And, and she says to uh, Barak, Yahweh is going to give them into your hand. The victory is yours. You just got to show up for battle. It's yours. God's going to win this. Now, Barak isn't as confident. He expresses a touch of unbelief, and he wants her, Deborah, to go with him. And if she doesn't go, he's not going to go. That's verse 8. And as a result, Deborah says that she will go with him, but the victory won't be given to Barak. It's going to be given to a woman. <laughs> the shock, the horror, the humiliation. You read that, you're actually supposed to laugh really hard. Ha! Barak, big bad Barak, he's the commander, you know. He probably worked out. He probably had some muscles to show for it. Yeah, you're not going to get the victory. We know you're, you know, beefed up and on creatine and all these other things. But, yeah, no, the victory is actually going to go to a woman. <laughs> Imagine an Israelite reading this story. Okay, that's funny. Women didn't go into battle. And they shouldn't today. But here we are. So we're supposed to laugh at that. And we're going to come back to that issue, by the way. So Zebulun and Nephtali, they bring their troops. They arrive to Kadesh. There's 10,000 of them in total, verse 10. But then we have this parenthetical remark in verse 11. Just this random statement here. We're introduced to another guy. His name is Heber. He's, the Ken he's a Kenite. And if you remember, the Kenites, they were from the family of Moses. And they were descendants of Cain. So they had become essentially covenant partners, but Haber actually disavowed his own people. He's gone astray. Haber's not a good guy in this, in this result. Um, he apparently struck an alliance with Jabin, the king of Canaan, and turned his back on his, his history. I mean, he, he, he was brought in through Moses. I mean, this is the covenant. And he said, no, he's going to go and be with Jabin. And that's going to come back to bite him, as we'll see so the battle. Here's the battle scene, verses 12 through 16. Um, the armies have gathered together. Deborah tells Barak to fight because Yahweh has given Sisera into his hand. They're there ready to fight. 10,000 of their men against who knows how many, we don't know, of the Canaanites. Probably double that. We, we just don't know. And she even says and asks in verse 14, has not Yahweh gone out before you? So the scene is set. Verse 15 says that Yahweh through Sisera and all his chariots and all his camp into confusion with the edge of the sword before Barak. And guess what happens to Sisera? He's humiliated, but he runs. He flees. So Yahweh wins the battle. What was this confusion? We have to look at chapter 5 to find out. So we'll come back to that. So Sisera escapes. Sisera finds himself at the tent of Jael, probably somebody he knew because he was friends, at least knew of um, Haber the Kenite. And Jael is the wife of Heber, the man, man we just met briefly in, in verse 11. Now, she tricks him into coming into the tent, which was a social no-no. You don't do that. And that was something, basically the equivalent of inviting adultery into the family. You just, as a man, you did not go into the tent. If the husband wasn't there, you did not go in. And Sisera thought it would be fine because the text says in verse 17 that there was peace between the two. He thought he was safe. I can go to this tent. That's my, that's my guy, Heber, the Kenite. Uh, we go way back, went to college. I don't know. <laughs> and he, so he knew of him and, and he thought he was safe. So he comes into the tent and he's covered with a rug. The Hebrew word there is very strange. Rug is a good argument for it being a rug. We're not entirely sure. A blanket of sorts but probably a rug that would have lined the bottom so that the dirt didn't get in as much as they could. You've been camping. You understand how those things are. Now, Sisera, again, thinks it's fine. He comes in, and he's covered with a rug. Now, the Hebrew here, again, is, is difficult. Translators, are, you know, translators aren't really sure, but apparently she tried to hide him. That's what we're supposed to think. Now, he asked for water. She gives him milk and curds. 
curds probably being some sort of like yogurt or we're not even sure, some sort of cheese or d'oeuvre order, something like that. And <laughs> we're supposed to laugh at that too because milk is what you give a baby. He's a big baby. She's a woman mothering him. The scene is set. Now, again, there, there are actually sexual overtones here that we're not going to get into, but it's interesting. Kind of like last week's episode as well. So he falls asleep, presumably had enough to drink and eat. He falls asleep, he, weary from battle, and she's asked to stand at the doorway to watch in case someone comes looking for him. He's on the run. He knows it. The battle's lost. They're coming for him. So he's asleep, and Jael decides to fear God more than her husband's compromises and sins. She takes the tent peg and a hammer. By the way, the tent peg and the hammer, they were tools that were hers because the tent, the woman was in charge of the domestication of the house. Her tools. She set up the tent. She made it how it was supposed to be. Husbands, if your wife wants to decorate a certain way, deal with it. Let her. It's just, it's biblical. And if you don't, she might, well, tent peg you. Anyway, so... She takes the tent peg and the hammer and drives it into his temple. Some people think the language was actually his mouth. Went in that way, right through. Temple's probably fine too, but again, we're dealing with Hebrew words that don't show up in other places in the Old Testament. So the scholars are somewhat unsure, but either way, she drives it through his head to the point where the text says it actually goes into the ground. So it's probably a fairly large tent peg spike. Wham! Good night, right? And he dies. Now, Barak finally catches up. Barak's chasing him down. And Jael shows him Sisera, who's lying there dead. And we're told again, interesting, when the Bible repeats something, pay attention. But we're told again that, that there was a tent peg in his temple, in the ground. So there's some sort of significance there, which I'll share shortly. And the section ends in the last verses. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel, and the hand of the sons of Israel went forth heavier and heavier against Jabin the king of Canaan until they had cut off Jabin the king of Canaan. So the battle's finishing up. They're mopping things up. And by the way, that last part, the language of being cut off is something that reminds us of circumcision. Jabin was circumcised, as in cut off from the earth, by the circumcised Israelites. Kind of a wordplay. They're making fun of him, essentially. They're making fun of him. Now, chapter 5 is too long. I have to, just, I have to summarize again because there's so much here. But in, in, if you recall from chapter 5, especially if you read ahead, this is Deborah's song. Deborah wrote it. It's Hebrew poetry. It was probably something that she taught to the armies and they would have sang it. And it was certainly something the Israelites would have sang um, shortly thereafter, especially after the victory. So Deborah starts her song by remembering the greatness of the Lord when he intervenes to rescue his people. Always start there in your prayers. Don't, don't start your prayers, oh God, it's all about me. No, God, you are good. You are great. You have done wondrous deeds. Glorify God in your prayers. So she starts there. And apparently in verses 4 and 5, Yahweh and not Baal is the Lord of the storm. So, we're told what happened. There was confusion and the Israelites won. But what actually happened, we're led to believe here that the reason Jabin was confused, the reason the armies were confused, the whole, the whole army was confused, the 900 chariots apparently stopped working. Well, in verses 4 and 5, the reason is because God sent a torrential downpour which essentially grounded the 900 chariots in the mud. So... I believe from this text, we're led to believe that somehow God in that moment flooded the Kishon River and they were just done. Done. Couldn't move. Confusion sets in. Where's this rain coming from? Because in their mind, it was probably Baal who didn't like him, but it's actually Yahweh. He's the God of the storm, not Baal and Asherah. So the downpour comes. A flash flood is from the Lord. It was a miraculous showing of the Lord's power. And Deborah reminds us that things were bad in Israel. She says how bad things were. They, they couldn't even travel for fear of their lives. In verse 6, the highways had been taken. You couldn't even travel. Deborah then, um, rise, uh, she rises based on the cry of Israel in verse 7. But also in verse 8, Israel had no weapons. They had no shields. They had no spears. 
So presumably Jabin had taken them in some sort of gun confiscation program. A buyback. Give us your spear. We'll give you some money. And Deborah then talks about the people who joined their battle. Barak was chosen to lead for a reason. He was chosen to lead. He was a Levite. Some of the tribes of Israel showed up. Some of them came and helped. Some of them didn't. Some of them actually stayed home, and they're criticized in the Bible for it. She criticizes them in her, in her song. Where were you guys? You were kicking back watching t- TV. You were too busy uh, tweeting your support. You should have been there. But God, we know, was victorious. And verse 20 says that the stars fought, fought from heaven. In the Bible, stars are usually references to angels. Some sort of heavenly hosts that are there, and they're in battle as well. And that's why we're seeing kind of behind the scenes and from God's perspective. And then in verse 21, we see that the river Kishon swept them away. So we're supposed to read this and think, Yahweh is the God of the storm, not Baal. When Jesus calms the sea, we're supposed to be thinking, ah, yes, he's the master of it. He calmed his own storm that he created. That's how powerful he is. In verse 24, Jael is called the most blessed of women. Do you remember anybody else in Scripture who was called that? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her act of faith, Jael's act of faith, by the way, in defiance of her husband, is lauded here, as it should, should be. What's the significance of the tent peg? Look at verse 26. She crushed and pierced his temple. What's the language of crush from? Yep. The seed of the woman has crushed the seed of the serpent again. Same theme keeps coming up in Judges. And after this, Deborah, the mother of Israel, mocks the mother of Sisera. This is hilarious. That's why I was snickering when Emberly was reading it. Hope you didn't think I was laughing at you because you said something funny. Uh, Not at all. It's actually hilarious because Deborah makes fun of Sisera's mom. In verse 28, Sisera's mom looking out the window. When is my son going to return from battle? When is he going to come back? Apparently in verse 30, they're, they're, I know what, he's late. They're busy dividing the spoil of victory. They're just, they're caught up. They're, 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 they're having a good time, all those boys out there fighting. And they're, they're taking two maidens or wombs for each soldier, soldier, which by the way is an indication that the Canaanites in war were will, willing to rape and pillage Israelite women. Deborah mocks Sisera's mother, and in verse 31, the finale reads this, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Yahweh. That's not very nice. All your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was quiet 40 years. Let's consider some application here, because this is another one of those fun texts like last week. First, Deborah. Deborah... She is the mother of Israel. We're told that in verse 7 of chapter 5. She's a mother of Israel. And her name means bee, as in a bumblebee. So her name sounds, Deborah, sounds like the Hebrew word for word, Deber. And basically, Deborah is a prophetess. She gives a word from the Lord. She's the one that told Barak, the victory is yours. And and she is curious, by the way. Hebrews 11 and even 1 Samuel 12, they don't mention her. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's on the front of your bulletin. That verse on the front from Hebrews, she's not mentioned. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, they're mentioned. But where's Deborah? She's not mentioned. Well, I think we're not told that God raised her up, at least not like with the others. Um, she, we're not told in the scripture she was a Mashiach, she was a savior. Um, in that form, uh, we're told she's a mom. It's very different than the other ones we've seen. Othniel and Ehud and all the other judges. We have a mom here. We have a mom. She was a mother. She was the mother of Israel. God had somehow in his providence raised her up to mother Israel until Israel was grown and ready for battle. So she's a mother bee. That's what her name means. She's a mother bee. And in Scripture, honey is a symbol for the wisdom of God's law word. There's some connections here that you can read that in Proverbs. And one might say her sting is one of judgment. 
Now, James Jordan points out that there is significance with the people involved in this story. And for one, there are, in Scripture, we have judges and we have queens and we have prophetesses. And never once do we have a priestess. You ever notice that in Scripture? We've never had a priestess. And this goes back to the garden, and there's a reason for this. Man is supposed to work and keep the garden, and the woman is his helper. So man is to work. The language of keep is actually a guard, being a guard. He's supposed to guard it. He's supposed to get violent if someone attacks it. He's supposed to defend his wife. He's her guardian. Adam was to guard Eve as part of his priestly calling. He's the priest. She's not. And women can't be priests because women don't guard men. Men guard women. That's, that's Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3, what we learn from there, Adam and Eve. And the same goes for eldership in the New Testament. That's why elders are only to be men. But here, Deborah is mothering Israel because Israel had no real Adams. She was in a time of gestation, shall we say waiting and waiting for another Adam to come who would be faithful, where the previous Adam had been unfaithful. And the failure of the Levites is pronounced here because the Levites had a special calling to represent Yahweh to the people, and they were faithless. In fact, we'll see more of that later in Judges. That's one of the big themes of the book. The Levites have just failed miserably. But not until Barak comes on the scene does Deborah pass on the responsibility to a Levite to represent Yahweh to the people? Now, to the contrary, it's not like women aren't guardians at all. You ladies are guardians, but your guardianship rests with the children. You are to guard your children. Hell hath no fury like an angry mama bear. She is the one who through childbirth gives way to the future seed. So guardianship in this case was given to Barak, but only until Barak was ready and mature. And he even fully wasn't ready. Because remember, he said to Deborah, I'm not going unless you go. That's not good. He wasn't exercising full unbelief, but he wasn't exercising full faith either. Now, Barak's name, interestingly enough, means lightning. Or like lightning bolt or lightning flash. So given God's control over the natural, the so-called natural world, it makes sense why he, being a Levite, is raised up to fight this battle. Yahweh brought the rain and the lightning. That's the significance of this text. So the showdown that took place, we know it was a battle between flesh and blood. People really died in battle. Swords and bows and shields and spears were involved. The chariots were stuck, but Israelites won the battle. But you peer behind it and you see what's the battle in the heavenlies. It's Yahweh against Baal. It's God fighting Satan and his demons. And the point is, it, yeah, Yahweh is, Yahweh is the true God of fertility. Fertility belongs to him, to his covenantly faithful people. And the bride of Yahweh always beats the bride of Baal, always beats the bride of Baal. Who's the bride of Baal? The Asheroths. Now, speaking of fertility, behind the book of Judges, we have noted several times there's that promise we referenced earlier, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel in the Bible. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is the story of history right there. That is history. That's the antithesis that marks all of humanity. History is a constant battle between the serpent and the woman and the seeds of both. Now, the serpent's aim has always been to attack the woman. The serpent's aim has always been to attack the woman. That's what happened in the garden, and that's what's happening here. Israel is Yahweh's bride, and the serpents of the Canaanites are going after them. When the men who are supposed to, for example, represent Yahweh in the marriage... When the men don't obey, God raises up faithful mothers like Deborah and Jael, and he rejects moms like Sisera's mother. And these moms are there to ensure that the future seed is prepared for this war. So mothers, you here today, your job, your main job, is to make sure that your children are ready for war against the serpent. 
The battle against humanism is ever-present in our time. That's your job, mothers. You are guarding your children. You are raising them so that they are ready to take the gospel of the kingdom and they are to go into the world and preach the gospel. Now, what Gile did by driving the tent peg through the head of Sisera, who knows, it probably may have been a 12 to 15-inch tent peg. What she did by driving it through the head of Sisera was the very thing that Adam was supposed to do in the garden. So after seeing that Eve was being tempted by the serpent, instead of taking the fruit from her hand, what he should have done is grab the tent peg or the shovel or the tools that he had been working on and developing, and he should have crushed the head of the serpent right there on the spot. And then he should have taken his wife to God and asked God to kill him as a substitute and not take his wife's life. And you want to know why that was supposed to happen? Because it's the very same thing that Jesus has done. The second Adam died for his bride in order to crush the serpent. See, Judges tells us that there is much more, (laughs) there is more than one way to crush a serpent's head. (laughs) And it also tells us that behind all the physical and the material that we see, there's always something spiritual and unseen going on. I don't know what's going on right now in Eastern Europe entirely. But I do know the greater battle is this antithesis between Christ and the serpent. And I I do know that the gospel is the only way out of any of it. Chapter 4 told us who's involved. Chapter 5 told us who is really involved, and that's Yahweh. That is God. Yes, God uses people, no doubt. He uses people, no doubt. But it is God who grants the victory. It's God who confounds the wisdom of men. It's God who makes our our paths straight. And there are several principles that we can derive from these passages. And I'm going to just list a few quickly as we get wrapped up. First, remember that we have multiple people involved here. We've already gone over Deborah's significance as the mother of Israel, awaiting, uh, awaiting for God to give birth to a redeemer. But the story, while about both women, Deborah and Jael, really does focus on the most blessed of all women, that being Jael. She's the focus here, not so much Deborah. And so, to start, let us recognize that Giles' love was in the right place. Think of it this way. She loved her stuff appropriately enough to steward them well when called upon by God. A hammer and a tent peg. Basic instruments. Okay? How how does that translate today? Well, women, um, that pan you use to bake bread, it crushes serpents too. Love your stuff well enough to know that when God calls upon you, you will use it. You will steward it well enough. Her tent peg, her, her, her tent pegs, the tent itself, her hammer, her groceries. Inflation was high probably then, so she had a few groceries, but she gave them to him in order to lull him to sleep to then kill him. She didn't love those things so much that she kept it to herself. She loved them just enough to give them away to God in service of him. So steward your things well for the sake of Christ's kingdom. That's one thing you could say here. So be ready to use your things for the glory of God. (laughs) Second, Jael, she's interesting. She had essentially betrayed her husband and the treaty that he had with Sisera. So what's the principle here? Well, in the Christian economy, it is kingdom over family every time. What did Jesus say? You have to hate your father and mother if you want to pursue me and my kingdom. And, and that is exaggerative. It's hyperbolic. But he said, you should be so in pursuit of what God has for your life that it almost looks like hate to your family. So what does it look like here? Well, if the husband, men... If you rebel against God, the wife must rebel against her husband while in pursuit of God. Um, do this in premarital counseling, but every time someone gonna go to get, somebody's going to get married, and you both need to love each other. You need to love God more than you love the other person, because you got two sinners coming together and under one roof, and things happen. <laughs> things happen. So you need to love God more because men, when we fail, our wives have to carry the weight not only of mothering and guarding their children, but a man who's let his guard down 
It's not a safe place. Jael, she rebelled against her husband in order to honor God. That's the principle here. And the same goes for tyrants, which incidentally, this passage is about that too. Who did she trick? She deceived Sisera, just like Ehud had done. Hey, I have a, I have a message for you, Eglon. Whoops, sword in the gut, you know. That's deception. But in war, that deception is appropriate. And the Bible celebrates it. So don't criticize it. Don't try to be more righteous than God. Oh, that's, I can't believe she did the tent peg thing through his head. That's terrible. No, the Bible celebrates it. She's a hero. She's a hero. It's kingdom over cause. It's kingdom over family. It's kingdom over all things. At Cross and Crown, it's, king, it's kingdom over Cross and Crown Church. The kingdom is bigger than any of us here. What about the tribes who didn't help? There's a principle there too. What happens when Christians don't fight? What happens when they cower like Israel, when David went to meet out with Goliath, the giant serpent who was wearing a scaly, scaly gear? This uncircumcised Philistine who David mocks, like Sisera, who would eventually be cut off. Goliath really would be cut off, his head. When Christians don't fight, they're scolded by God. And listen, don't miss the battle and then miss out on the blessings. There are a lot of blessings involved in the battle. When we hear the gospel, we're supposed to respond to it with action. When we respond to God by faith, but that faith is meant to do something in the world. So letting your light shine before all men means actually letting it shine before all men. And if you, like the tribes who didn't show up, you want to save your life, Jesus says you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, Jesus says then you find it. You will gain the kingdom. See, what God delivers us to, he delivers us from sin into what we might call a transformational religion. That's the Christian program. And it's not transformational religion in your life if you're just going through the motions. And none of these people were None of these people were really going through the motions. Uh, I think they lived before the face of God here. I mean, Barak may have been. He had a moment of unbelief. But I think the reason that these funny historical accounts are the way they are is because they literally mock the enemy. Israel would have read these decades and decades later and just laughed. Yep, that's God. He mocks the enemy. He laughs at his enemies, Psalm 2 says. Sisera is a pagan foreigner like Eiglon, and he's stupid, he's gullible, and he's driven only by his lusts and desires. In other words, an Israelite would be compelled to not be like that. But so many people go through the motions, they have little to no transformation in their lives. They just are driven by their stupidity. They're driven by their gullibility, I think that's a word. They're driven by whatever desire happens to win out that day. Don't be like that. Is it because you're not stewarding your body well? Is it because you're not stewarding your possessions well? Are they just checking the boxes on the spiritual chart to just get things done? And, or are they cultivating true experiential religion where they actually feel the joy of the Lord in their lives? They feel the joy of the Lord. They, they sharpen their mental faculties and they seek to serve others and they dig into the wisdom of the word to see how am I not like the person I'm supposed to be? See, Deborah and Jael were two women who were in the battle and when called on, they showed up and they delivered. Where were the men? Going through the motions. See, when the church forsakes covenant, we can expect failure, we can expect opposition, and we can expect oppression. So pray for the thousands upon thousands. Of, Ukraine's one of the most Christianized nations in Europe, by the way. Pray for them. They are experiencing what amounts to be a complete nightmare right now. Imagine just having to leave your home. Just go. Flee. So that you don't get bombed or potentially nuked, which is what they're talking about now. So pray for them. But we know God is using it, no doubt. But part of the reason we're so messed up right now in Western civilization, which inherited the Reformation and the blessings of the Reformation, but it's because we have chosen a completely different path and now we're reaping the consequences. It's like, 
our army is more concerned with diversity training than anything. Like, that's what makes the news. Well, we got a new diversity program. This will be great. Do you allow your soldiers to have, like, pride flags on their guns? Like, what, what are we doing? We're missing it. But I love, I, love, I love the beginning of chapter 5 and what it tells us. It says that the earth is said to tremble when the Lord comes near. This is where I want to wrap up. I promise. Question. Can the same thing be said of you? Do you tremble when you open up his word? Do you tremble when you pray to him? I mean, the earth trembles. Do you? Do you tremble before his awesome deeds? I mean, th this passage ought to, ought to make us tremble before him. Yahweh is the true God of the storms, not Baal. Yahweh is the one true God, not the philosophers, not the politicians, not the scientists, not the bankers, the people who literally conspire to just make life a living hell for people. They're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's Christ. He is King. And at the most basic level, this passage, similar to the ones we've already seen, and certainly similar to the ones we're going to see, tells us that deliverance is found in trusting God despite all appearances. I mean, if there's one thing I could say to the Christians in Ukraine right now, trust God despite all appearances. That's it. That's the sermon. Deliverance is is found in trusting God despite all appearances, despite the 900 iron chariots, despite you know, R Russian aggression, despite inflation and gas prices, despite seemingly, the seemingly endless abortion holocaust, despite every single thing you see every single day, God saves, God rescues. Despite what you see, God delivers. Jesus brings his salvation to your doorstep as the one who has conquered the serpent. He shows up the victor. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God causes his enemies to perish, and we are absolutely supposed to revel in that. But we are to enjoy, we are to savor, we are to cherish the victory of Christ over his enemies. That's not vindictive behavior. It's not petty. No, it's what you do when you follow the king into battle. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as we look to your word and we ask for your blessing upon it. I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would be uh, present, challenging us and convicting us of sin. God, there's so much here in these two, two chapters. I, I pray that we would um, walk away with it and walk away changed. Um, help the word to sink deep. And Lord, we do come to you tonight and we do pray for our brothers and sisters overseas. And the unimaginable, unimaginable trouble that they're going through. And ultimately, Christ, uh, we pray to you and ask Jesus that you would crush your enemies. Either make them a friend and change their hearts or crush them in history. Make them no longer irrelevant. May your glory shine through. God, we ask how long you will let the nations mock you. Would you arise? Would you be victorious? We trust you in Christ's name. Amen.